I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Opening a newspaper on the morning of April 1, 1995 was grim reading for officials and supporters of the ARL. With headlines screaming out Murdoch plunders league and stars rush to Super League, it was easy to believe that the war had been won. Arriving at Phillips Street that morning, Ken Arthurson couldn't even be sure he would have a league to run by the end of the day. Within 48 hours, however, the ARL had beaten Murdoch's Raiders at their own game, signing over 100 players and sending News Limited back to the whiteboard. This is part two of Phillips Street, the eighth chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, not that good for once. Yeah, we're, we're coming to you a, a day late, so apologies for that, uh, but couldn't be helped. My uh, dear mother, Narelle, she had a fall, broke a vertebrae in her back. No good at St. Vincent's under the care of some wonderful nurses and doctors there. She expected to make a recovery in a few days, but yeah, it's been a tough couple of days. Yeah, so uh, my heart goes out and I'm sure the rest of the RLD community wish her all the best as well. So uh, we'll get right into it. And uh, after a rough couple of months for the ARL on this show, this is a, a good episode for them. Yeah, the fight back's on. I want to start this by stressing that I hate to frame anything in this whole saga as winning and losing. I mean, we're all losers in the end. There's right? no winners. <laughs> like every victory was Pyrrhic. Every, you know, win had a cost. But there's little doubt that at this point in the war, the ARL came out on top. I want to say it's been great getting the listener feedback and there's been a lot of, uh, and I'm feeling it too. It's like, yeah, go ARL. Uh, and so n- not that they'll be spared any criticism over the course of this episode, but they really d- did uh, land some blows over the course of the first week week of the war. So we're going to get right into that. And much of this episode is going to be spent breaking down the wild scenes that took place at Phillips Street following the the launch of the Super League raid on April Fool's Day. And so although the drama would unfold pretty relentlessly over the next year, it was never as concentrated in drama and chaos as it was in that first week. So because we need the freedom to move forwards and backwards through the chronology in this episode, I just want to set this up with a brief timeline of events. And by events, I'm only talking about the ARL's actions between April 1 and about April 4. So as discussed in the first part of this chapter, the wheels were set in motion on the morning of April 1, an emergency board meeting called at Phillips Street. At around the same time, Optus and Kerry Packer committed to the fight and worked out to deal to supply the ARL with some funds. The ARL became clued into exactly what the raid entailed when Steve Gillis, manager of Adam Ritson, called him up to tell him that Adam Ritson was holding off from signing and and wanted to know what was happening with the ARL. And after Gillis spoke to James Packer on the Saturday, Adam Ritson handed back his Super League signing bonus. And that Sunday saw the first serious attempts at signing players from loyal clubs. 
So Jeff Carr at the Dragons spoke to the team before their game against the Bulldogs uh, and mentioned ARL loyalty agreements. At kickoff, they were 20,000. By the end of the night, those had grown to 100,000. During that game, Tim Brasher and Brad Fittler arrived at Phillips Street and were then subsequently signed to loyalty agreements. Those two, plus Paul Harrigan, formed the core of the rep team that Phil Gould and Bob Fulton drew up together and then subsequently targeted. Harrigan was approached via phone by Phil Gould on that Sunday evening. The next day, drove down to Sydney to eventually sign a loyalty agreement. The next day, he came back down on the bus bringing his Knights teammates. And by that day, by the Tuesday, there were over 100 players signed by the ARL and anyone who'd ever worn a pair of football boots had descended on Phillips Street to try to get their cut of the money. (laughs) So a lot happening in a very short period of time. And of course, there are game-changing seismic developments on the Super League side in that same period. But in this episode, we're just focusing on the ARL's immediate actions. So I want to start there with the big signing, the one that proved to the ARL that they were in a fight, and that was Brad Fittler. So as we've spoken about, he had prior knowledge of something happening with Super League before the April 1 revelations, but he and his manager, Wayne Beavis, decided to adopt a wait-and-see approach and just see if any offer would come from Super League. So none had by the time he arrived at Phillips Street on that Sunday evening. By then, a media circus had already camped outside, and he came in and spoke to Bozo, Gus, James Packer, and John Quayle. So there was a lot of speculation at the time that at that point he would had already been offered the test captaincy during that signing meeting, and that's something that he denies vehemently. But I, I, you kind of think, given how much in the forefront of planning rep footy was to Bozo and Gus, there would have been some kind of illusion at the very least. Definitely, they would have said, you know, we can't guarantee anything, but you're penciled in yeah. as captain. You know, just a strong hint of, you know, we see you as the future of this yeah, team. exactly. And I mean, to be fair, if nothing else, he was the most experienced and qualified anyway. I mean, with the possible exception of Chief. Yeah, I just look at that and think it's a different Brad Fittler to what we've seen in recent years, who's, you know, a calm, yoga-loving, outside-the-box thinker. He was just tied to Gus at that point. So if he, if he went to Super League, it would have been so shocked. He was 23. <laughs> like, it's insane. Like, he'd already done so much and was so... Superstar. Yeah, it's crazy that he was only 23. But yeah, you're right. He hadn't found that maturity and would be easily swayed by his ex and soon-to-be current club coach in Phil Gould and his Australian coach. In but more Bob than Fulton. a coach, a mentor yeah, and yeah. confidant and father figure. So in Freddie's version of the story, he, Brasher, and Paul Harrigan were all there together on the Sunday night at Phillips Street, with him going in first, then Brasher, then Harrigan. But in Harrigan's account, he was in in Sydney for a game against the Tigers on the Sunday Arvo, was back on the bus in Newcastle, and was called in Newcastle by Gould on the Sunday night. So I I think logistically, I believe Chief's version, it just makes a lot more sense. Mm. Uh, But it's just... But I'm sure like journalists and authors deal with this sort of thing all the time, but I've just been blown away by how wildly different people's accounts of the same event can be through all of this. Rashomon. Yeah. <laughs> like, so Brad Fittler suddenly gets offered all this money. You'd think that'd be a pretty significant moment in a person's life. And then yet 10 years later, he's you know got Paul Harrigan there when he wasn't anywhere near it. Yeah, but also with these footballers, they're, they're so entitled and so living on a pedestal that you know it's just it's just another bucket of money dumped in their lap. You know, 
No, I, I, let's just get into it because the Freddy story is not only quite comical, but really encapsulates the instant game-changing nature of the Super League War. So he went in, uh, was, as, as I said, met with Bozo, Gus, James Packer and John Quayle all in the room, was offered a $200,000 signing bonus and six hundred grand a year. And he said at the time he was on 160 grand a season. He was. Uh, said he was being offered five times as much, which by any maths, that doesn't work <laughs> out, but still a big, big pay increase. So at that point, he didn't sign on the spot, but there was very little doubt in his head that he'd be committing to the ARL from that point. So he sat outside, you know, rubbing his hands together, thinking of everything he was going to buy with that money. Suddenly, James Packer came out and said, here's the deal. Brasher wasn't happy with the upfront payment. He wanted three hundred thousand, not two hundred thousand. So three hundred it is, and for you as well. <laughs> and Freddie said, In the space of ten minutes, Tim Brasher had made me a hundred thousand dollars. That was the total amount of my football earnings in my whole first three years at Penrith. I'd slog my guts out for three years for less than Brash had just won for me. It's amazing. It's the actual El Dorado. Yeah. So then with the deal almost sorted, he went back in the room and almost as a joke said to James Packer, how about some money for a drink? Packer immediately cut him a check for (laughs) $20,000. He went outside with Brasher and in his own words said, I went outside and threw my arms around Tim Brasher and said, thanks, mate. I owe you a beer. Mind if I repay that debt right away? And off we went to a club in Dremoyne and got thoroughly pissed. I mean, who wouldn't? (laughs) Dremoyne. (laughs) That must have been Brasher's suggestion. (laughs) Uh, then the next day, went to the Pioneer Tavern in Penrith and cashed the check in over the bar, and that twenty thousand dollars was gone shortly after. Bloody hell! So with that, him signed with Tim Brasher signed and Adam Ritson signed, and we will get to Adam Ritson later in this episode. Fittler became the first part of the ARL's fight back, and a really good piece to have in place. And obviously, the money helped. But Filler does seem to genuinely have believed in the cause. And may- maybe you're right, a lot of that is just being swayed by Gus. But this is what he had to say about it. No one can understand what a tough position the ARL were in. Someone had taken their baby away from them. I think what they have done shows a lot of character. I think they've done the right thing. They've fought for what they've brought up over the last 100 years. Yeah, I believe that he uh, truly believes in the cause as well. Yeah. But it's just the whole thing about, you know, if you're loyal like a Roman soldier, you'd say, well, don't worry about the 300,000. I'll just stay, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But the point is he didn't get greedy. That ARL offer was good enough. A lot better than what he was on. A lot more money than he ever thought he'd get. So he didn't really need to see what Super League could match or surpass he was like i believe in this cause yeah this is a great deal i'm done so, so much of it just the luck of being in the right age bracket some guys were too young and some guys just retired two yeah. years before it's just criminally uh, unlucky for some well that's I, I had it as one of my talking points like how do those players feel like how does gary jack feel oh ropeable you, you know and and freddie says himself like he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Another interesting thing about Freddie and his decision to stay away from Super League is that he said he hated the spotlight and he didn't want to be part of some revolutionary crusade. The spotlight was firmly on him on the other side. This is what I'm going to say. From the moment he signed, (laughs) he became the face of the ARL. Yeah. I think it's entirely possible that he was that naive that he didn't realize that he was the next immortal, (laughs) future immortal. It, it is funny, and, and he became a different player at that stage of his career anyway. But in, say, 93, 94, everyone knew he was a great player, but you wouldn't have considered him the face of the league or an out-and-out superstar. 
he almost had that uh, lariness to him. And when he became the East leader and played 5 eighth and Lockmore and stuff like that, he became more of a mature player, I think. I think you've hit it there. I think it the actual turning point was becoming a full-time 5 eight. Suddenly, he had his hands on the ball more. He was a key part of any team he was in. He became one of those players where that his team's like win-loss record when he wasn't there was, you know, constantly a focus. Absolutely. But also how he worked on his game through his career. He didn't really have that great a kicking game early. And towards the end of his career, he was like Ricky Stewart. Yeah. Left-footed the whole bit. So again, it's one of those things where this just came at the right time. And I don't think it defines his career, but it's interesting that it came at the same time that he went from being just a very good player to a marquee face of the game in the last episode we spoke about the rep scene and how important that was to the arl now look at brasher and fitler's rep record compared to some of the breakaway players it's much more robust mm. just in number number yeah, wise yeah. i think it really helped them for legacy yeah oh without a doubt because i mean brasher especially had that you know 19 straight games or whatever it was as new south wales fullback yeah i think you could say that 95 he would have struggled to hold on to that blues jersey with mullins for example absolutely yeah but because he is so prominent in the arl's half of the war i thought it was worth delving in a little deeper into brad fitler's super league story and we've touched on it a bit already but he's also the perfect bridge between eras the pre and post super league eras so he was already being paid relatively well you know he mentioned he was on one hundred sixty thousand dollars a year had good management in wayne beavis who was taking care of his money setting limits on on how much he could spend investing the money he was getting all the rest of it but still retained that naivety about it how many players do you think said out loud how good's this? <laughs> and they get their loyalty checks. So he was raised by a single mother in the west of Sydney. The first thing he did with his money was to buy her a big house with a private jetty on Sussex Inlet. <laughs> which, it's the ultimate newfound wealth cliche to get the house for your mother. But it, it's no less touching because of it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Especially when it, he talks about the sacrifices she made for him throughout his childhood. It's, you know, it's just a nice little aspect of the story. And so he left the house at Glenmore Park at the end of the year and moved to a flash apartment in the Rocks before eventually buying beachfront property on the Northern Beaches. The Rocks is funny. Yeah. And, and he was living with a futures trader friend who he called his best mate. And it's like, well, did they come up together and they both managed to get out or is this a friend he made once he... Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> But the money didn't really seem to change his character, even if it changed the company he kept and his lifestyle. And this isn't to... But it's funny you mentioned him coming along at the right time because that's something that he seems super aware of and even at this point in time he always had this sense of being really lucky and blessed and it's not to suggest that at this point he'd matured so as we said he was 23 he was still four years off waking up unconscious out outside glee police station <laughs> blind freddy best headline <laughs> but he always seemed to have this sense of gratitude and that he felt lucky but you know what? I've always felt that about him as a player at Origin. When he was in the centers, even as a kid, I always felt confident. Just having him there, just the vibe he gave off. When he started coaching Origin recently, I just felt like we were going to win. Mm. Despite like how weird his ideas were or whatever. Yeah. He just has this sort of like make-your-own-luck type vibe he gives off. I think now as the Origin coach and, and as a you know older man, he seems to have managed to put some sense of spirituality behind his luck. Some sense. <laughs> 98%. But it's something he thinks about rather than just something that he talks about without really delving 
delving into the meaning of it. Like I remember at about the time it would have been in 94, 95, I found a, a stack of pornos in a, behind a bush, which kids today don't understand. That was something that would just happen to you. <laughs> and there was a penthouse magazine that had an article with Brad Fittler, which I read over and over. Uh, I actually wanted to track it down for this episode, but I didn't want to be the guy in the library <laughs> reading a penthouse for the article. Do they have penthouse in the library? It, it's secure access, you know, but right. yeah. But I mean, that says all I need to hear about you is you found a stack of penthouses and you're reading a Brad Fittler article. <laughs> but even then, as a you know, 22, 23-year-old, that was the tenor of what he was talking about. He bought his house in Glenmore Park. It had a pool in it. This was pre-Super League and he just thought he had made it. He had a house with a pool in it. You yeah, know? it's awesome. On a side note, if you want to sound a thousand years old, um, use the word porno. <laughs> It's just like it's, you never hear it anymore with like the O on the end. So this story in his autobiography stands out to me as an example of the way he would talk about luck. I'll tell you how well things were going for me. I had a couple of hundred dollars on a horse and watched the race on the television in the office of Buck, the boss at the Pioneer Tavern. The horse was narrowly beaten and in disgust I threw a pen at the TV. Miraculously it hit the on-off switch and turned the power off the TV. You could try it a million times and it wouldn't happen again. Buck and the others just looked at me and said, You're blessed, Freddy, you tinny prick. <laughs> I think the fact that he thought that needed to go in his autobiography, <laughs> it says a lot. Yeah. And even as much as him buying waterfront property on the northern beaches, he I'll just read this. I paid a high price for the block, which has the beach on one side and Pitwater Road on the other. It was the talk of real estate in the area. A lot of people told me I'd paid way too much. Not lucky, Freddie. Within a year, the real estate boom had hit. And now you couldn't buy a block like that for five times the amount. Like, <laughs> like buying waterfront property in Sydney I'd up, went up in value. <laughs> Again with the five times. <laughs> I've just found it very interesting seeing this through line of luck in the way Freddie's talked over the last 20 plus years. Yeah. But let's move on to what came next for Freddie. And we should note that at this stage in our chronology, just after April Fool's, Penrith hadn't committed either way. And him signing with the Roosters didn't actually happen till after the 1995 season. So we're jumping right ahead in discussing it. But it'd be too difficult to restrict our conversation just to April Fool's. So we're just going to press on. And you kind of get the sense that he was gone from Penrith regardless of the war. Yeah, I mean, we go back to the tragedy of Ben and all that that followed. So I think everyone was looking for a clean break as yeah. it were. And the fact that Phil Gould had gone to East, that made it even more apparent that, you know, maybe his days at Penrith were done. And funnily enough, Gus years earlier had told Freddie that a player of his stature, if he ever decided to leave Penrith, there were only three clubs he should consider going to, the Bulldogs, the Broncos and Manly. And when Freddie was wrestling with his decision on where to go, he said that to Phil Gould. He said, didn't you say this? And Gus said, yeah, I did, but I think we're going to make the Roosters bigger than all of them. And he did it. Like Now the Roosters are that destination club way more than any other team. Against all odds with no fans or anything. So, yeah. So it's, it's another reason you have to give Gus some praise for laying the foundations for that. Yeah. Not alone, obviously. But... Absolutely, yeah. But, I mean, you're right. And so at that point throughout the 1995 season, all the talk was, is it going to be East or is it going to be Manly? So basically those were the only two teams ever in the hunt. And Freddie at the time, even that's how he thought of, about it. He said, I figured it was either going to be Manly or Ace and either would be fine with me. I have the connection with Bozo and for Gus. His legacy would have been tarnished for Manly. 
And I think that comes into it. So he said that the reason he ultimately chose East was in part a good of game consideration that Manly didn't really need him and he could make more of a difference by going to the Roosters. And yeah. thank God he did. Yeah, it's selfless. We've seen it with Kevin Durant in recent years in the NBA with the, with the Warriors joining a star-studded team that doesn't do good for your reputation. No. Obviously, there's a lot more Brad Fittler talk coming up over the course of our season. So now let's go back to Phillip Street and set the scene for that crazy week and the signing spree that was going on following April 1. And the accounts of Phillip Street on that Monday and Tuesday in particular are wild. And in a research project that has been in short supply of fun, this was a really enjoyable part to read. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to get your opening thoughts on reading some of these accounts. I had to pick the drawer off the floor, to be honest with you. <laughs> but Phillip Street's the scene for it. All those wild old times yeah, from decades past. Just another chapter. So basically you had every player in the game, not every son with Super League, players who hadn't played for five years, ball boys, that they'd all descended <laughs> to see what they could get out of it. Was sitting around the corridors, every square inch of space filled. The Chinese restaurant downstairs bringing up regular supplies of dim sims, satay sticks and uh, spring rolls. Like, it would have been El Dorado for them. <laughs> There's always a Chinese restaurant involved in rugby league history. Uh, so John Quayle actually said that it got to the stage where if they ever saw another dim sim, it would have been too soon. <laughs> so I'm just going to open it with a, an account from Gordon Tallis, which this is one of, of many that tell the same kind of story. So I've chosen this one. On Tuesday morning, along with just about everyone else in the game, I went down to ARL headquarters in Phillips Street to see what was happening. It was like nothing you could ever imagine. There were dozens of players down there lining the corridors, sitting on seats if they could find them, or on the floor if they couldn't, waiting to get into a room so James Packer, Bob Fulton or Phil Gould could hand them a pile of money. Brownie and I got there at 9am and we weren't the first, that's for sure. It was the same day that Paul Harrigan drove a bus down from Newcastle with all the night's senior players. Add to them the blokes who were already there, and it was some crowd. I sat there from 9am to at least 4pm, talking to other players such as Brett Dallas and waiting to get in and get my cut. It's one of those moments where you'd love to just be there. I wonder what they were talking about. Yeah. It's like, how much you can ask for? There, there would have been a lot of that, eh? Except Steve George Alice said that it was almost like waiting outside the principal's office and <laughs> players weren't really talking to each other about it he said everyone was looking at each other but no one wanted to mention why they were there and no one was certain how they were going to be dealt with crazy times a side note on the harrigan um knight's bus trip i've always wondered did he have like a special bus license was it a mini bus where you can drive with a 1a or what what was the story with that we might save that to our chief drives the bus chapter <laughs> which, which is not too far away <laughs> Uh, that, that's going to be a good one. You know, there were press hunting in packs outside. One journalist said that all the, the mainstream TV and radio guys didn't even know who the players were. They'd stick a microphone in anyone's face and ask them what they'd got. <laughs> and as I said, it was from stars in the game to like borderline park players. Steve Gillis, the manager, said that his mobile phone was ringing constantly. People he never heard of would be calling. You know, kids still at school, everyone just wanting to, to get their cut. <laughs> And uh, I'll, I'll read a, a good example of this from Phil Gould's book. One player came to us from Illawarra because he'd heard about the recruiting drive. To be honest, I didn't recognize him, but he introduced himself when we started talking. He said he'd already been to see Super League and been offered $30,000 sign-on and $125,000 a year. I said, how old are you? He said, 27. I said, how much first grade are you played? He said, about 12 games. I said, you're 27, you played a dozen first grade games. Do you think Illawarra will pick you up? 
He said he didn't know. If they didn't, he'd go and play in the park. Then I said, what are you doing here when you've been offered that much by Super League? He said, I just can't believe it's happening. I said, believe it, mate. Get across to Super League and sign. (laughs) Did we find out who that was? No. And Steve Gillis said that at the end of the day, they'd retreat to the bar on the first floor of the league's club. Managers would be sitting there with their hands in their heads trying to make sense of what had just happened. And it didn't get any less wild during the actual negotiations. So although there was technically a a valuation system in place, so an average first grader, a $50,000 sign-on, through to an international, a minimum $150,000 sign-on, that quickly went out the window when they had to, you know, make these deals happen. So Graham Richardson said that he'd be on the phone, try to organize a meeting, and someone would pop their head in and say, oh, this bloke's here, can we give him $300,000? And Richard would just, you know, have a quick glance down at his papers and say, yep, no worries. (laughs) And you asked if if the ARL had their own tomb of Ave, and they did have several. This is one that stands out to me. One manager said that he was in with Bozo trying to get a deal for his player, was offered a $60,000 sign-on and $80,000 a year. And he said, look, it's not bad, but we think $100,000 is more like it. And Bozo was like, yeah, yeah, okay, no worries. They get out, look down at their check, and he'd actually given them a $100,000 sign-on check. (laughs) And no one seemed to be keeping track of the budget. John Quayle said, We budgeted, but it was in our minds. We didn't have a calculator. And it wasn't for two days we did a tally. I said to Bozo and Phil, Get in here. Unload your minds what you're paying them so we can add this up. $10 million went like that. Bloody hell. Why didn't they have a calculator? (laughs) And yeah, how could you let that go for two days? and go? How much money we spent? But it comes back to what we were saying last time about the philosophy of spending your own money versus spending someone else's money. Absolutely. But like, I mean, or up to shareholders, listeners of the RLD, they'll be filing a uh, bit late now, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they might if they could hear ace negotiator Bob Fulton's strategy. This was uh, one account from Mike Coleman's Super League book. When the manager went to the league to cement the deal, Bob Fulton pulled out his pen. Right, he said. What are we giving these blokes, 75? Actually, said the manager, my understanding was it was 25 from you and 25 from the club, 50 per player. Fulton considered for a split second, then started filling in the amounts on the contracts. Ah, bugger it, we'll give him 75. (laughs) How lucky are those boys? So although that all sounds like it was chaos, and I'm, I'm sure it was, it was underpinned by a strategy. And this is one of the areas where the ARL really had it over Super League. Going for the quantity over quality, which is something they decided early on they had to do. This almost as much as Super League actively freezing out the managers made it easier for the managers to negotiate with the ARL. Because Super League, at that stage of the war, the strategy was it's the best of the best. Whereas the ARL were like, we want volume. We want to strangle Super League. We mentioned it every episode, but the best of the best is fire. But who are they playing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So suddenly the managers have a player who might be the 30th best halfback and he's got Super League who wants marquee talent and the ARL who wants anyone with two legs. It you know <laughs> makes it a pretty easy sell. And that was decided early on. Phil Gould thinking that the comp with the most players would ultimately be the one to get up. And Jack Gibson might have been the first one to come up with a figure of 250 players. So in the very early stages of the Super League War, he was interviewed and said that the clubs would need a minimum of 25 players and gave all these statistics as to what a competition would need. And so it came down to 
250 players in his estimation. And that quickly became the magic number, like almost like the, the US Electoral College, you know, the, <laughs> the race to 250 players. But why did it take Jack Gibson to work that out? <laughs> and Super League very quickly caught up to this line of thinking too. And that's where you'll get the Steve Admed deals that we'll talk about in a future chapter. But we, we mentioned a bit with Freddie, but you can't oversell how much this was literally life-changing for these blokes who woke up one morning just playing footy, working a part-time job and, you know, living in that old world to suddenly everything changing. Amazing. Full-time professional, three times what they were earning for doing nothing different. I mean, it took... 10 years for the money to catch up to this era. Yeah. And I think that was another reason for the frenzy is that everyone knew that, as Bob Fulton said, it was a once Yeah, The sign-on fees weren't going to come again. Every player in the game knew that this was the chance, you know. So money quickly became the focus, but you can't really blame the players when it was such an instant change to their lives. So this comment by Phil Gould uh, was a bit rich in my opinion. We had a real greed situation there for a couple of days. It made me sick. Certain players and managers were making their decisions solely on the cash being paid. I can't remember too many thank yous being offered by anyone or someone actually saying, gee, that's a bonus when they were handed an extra 50 or 100,000. It was all just take. Well, it's a bit of a pot and Mr. Kettle there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but that who got what thing did become an issue on both sides and would lead to you know signing two contracts filthy four scenarios <laughs> all kind of dramas as players looked at you know this guy's getting more at me and i've done this and so i can see where gold's coming from but what can you expect in this situation yeah so in this environment you can't really assign blame or you know recrimination when everything did change so quickly. Now you're seeing players' names regularly appearing in the real estate section, Greg Florimo buying a California bungalow in Chatswood and <laughs> I challenge anybody in their profession to go through this and not see a few dollar signs in your eyes. Yeah, like suddenly you're working a job and then out of nowhere for no for literally no reason. <laughs> you're getting offered three times as much. It's only natural that things are going to get crazy. Absolutely. So that was the scene at Phillips Street in that first week. We will be revisiting it over the course of this series. But I wanted to talk about the team at the heart of the ARL and their journey through this stage of the Super League War. And that's, of course, Manly, who were in many ways the Brisbane of the ARL in that they were crucial to keep for a lot of reasons. In Manly's case, they were the best team in the league. You obviously had the Ken Arthurson connection. You had the Bob Fulton connection. We forget now they were the Glamour Club. And once Canterbury had signed with Super League, they were the most successful Sydney team by some distance. From 87 to 95, they were strong. Yeah. 95, they were at their absolute peak. That team yeah. had come on strong in 94 and were going to go on a three-year run of dominance that would net them one premiership ultimately. But they were also the Brisbane of the ARL in that there was very little danger of them ever going the other way. So Bob Fulton's comments sum it up pretty neatly. There's no way in the world Manly would have joined Super League. The club board didn't even go anywhere near Super League, and I dare say we would have been a prime target. If Manly would have gone there, I think the whole thing would have collapsed. And the other reason they were the Brisbane of the ARL is that Super League basically just assumed that they were a lost cause. They were the last club to be approached by Super League because everyone thought that their ties were too close to Ken Arthurson and the ARL, which is that image problem all over again with, <laughs> with Arco. But with such a like 
uh, alluring ground there. <laughs> they want to approach them. And it also makes sense logistically that they'd be the last club to be approached because when secrecy is so key to the game plan, it would have been a massive gamble to try to sn- snatch Manly from under the ARL's noses. Do you reckon Peter Peters could keep a secret? <laughs> so for his part, Ken Arthurson claims that he told Manly to think of themselves when deciding what to do. The way he tells it, he says, I told Manly quite categorically at that time that whatever decision they made, whether to stick with the ARL or to go with News Limited, was a matter for them to decide. I stressed to the club that under no circumstances should they personally feel obligated to me or to my stand against News Limited. The club needed to make its own decision, which it did. I I put that in the asking Ken Irvine if he really wanted to come to Manly (laughs) class of plausibility. (laughs) Manly was a pretty drama-free signing for the ARL. Steve Menzies said that at Manly, it didn't ever seem like we had a decision to make. There's an example of another blessed player. Rookie of the year. Yeah. (laughs) Cash me in. Exactly. And suddenly became so loaded that when he moved house at some stage in 1995, his mum found a $20,000 check behind his fridge. (laughs) Super League did eventually go after Steve Menzies with Michael O'Connor calling up the Menzies household and speaking to Steve's stepfather, who without even discussing it with Steve, just said, no, no, thank you, Michael. Uh, We won't be going down that route. We're very flattered, but we're happy where we are. Do we have any stats on Michael O'Connor's conversion rate (laughs) as a recruiter? (laughs) And I'm sure that phone call, you know, something along the lines of, well, he's a rubbish player anyway. So, (laughs) What's he ever done in the game? And so Manly players became quite outspoken spruikers for the ARL for whatever reason. You had Mark Carroll proudly talking about all that rugby league had given him and and the duty he felt because of that. Terry Hill, you know, pitching the party line. I already play in a super league. It's called the ARL. The same one he was in court with. (laughs) Regarding Mark Carroll now, he, he was a test player early in his career. But he wasn't really a top tier prop until the ARL. No, thing it, it sort of made him as a top tier guy. Well, yeah, he made that nineteen ninety kangaroo tour, but I don't know if he actually played any tests before Super League. Well, yeah, well, he was on the he was, he was yeah, a, yeah. on the tours. I mean, he was up there, yeah, but he wasn't sort of in the superstar category. No, and never played any rep footy after the Super League war. Yeah, but it made him into a real force. And so much of that is tied into the confrontations with Chief Mm. in that era. I think because of that, his career probably seems a bit more decorated than it actually was. Yeah. Good rugby league attitude, though. I like Mm. it. Yeah. So Super League did, of course, manage to land a couple of fairly handy manly players in Ian Roberts and Matthew Ridge, uh, along with Owen Cunningham, who got a nice little superannuation package to finished his career at the Cowboys. Those are the ones that make me happy. Yeah. Guys that get a golden handshake out of the game. (laughs) So Ridge was the first Manly player to be approached. Is there Uh, there anyone that suits Super League more? (laughs) So you recall the last time we spoke about Matthew Ridge, he talked about how impressed he was with Lachlan Murdoch. (laughs) Uh, And he was actually approached by Graham Lowe, who was recruiting for Super League by then. And Ridge was actually one of the few Manly players to not basically sign on the spot when pitched by Ken Arthurson and Bob Fulton. Uh, and he he was and after those initial talks, Bob Fulton came up to him and and tried to seal the deal. And this comes from Matthew Ridge's book, so I'm just going to read an abridged version of his meeting with Bob Fulton. You with us, Ridgie? I don't know, Bose. I say 
I hear Super League's throwing some pretty good dollars around. Okay, I'll tell you what, we'll give you 300000 a year and add on another year to your contract. I'm earning $200,000 a year, so this is sounding good. But Bozo hasn't finished. He's just reloading the magazine on that rapid-fire mouth of his. And we'll give you 250000 to sign on straight away. So that's 250000 as a sign-on and 300 a year for the next three years. I looked at Bozo and say, Yeah, okay, that seems pretty cool to me, Bozo. He picks up a pen and turns around a contract on his desk. I want you to sign. So we've got a deal, he says. Yeah, yeah, it's looking pretty cool. Well, let's shake on it. He puts out his hand. I have a feeling of crushing dread. I think if I don't shake his hand, he won't let me out of this room. If I don't get out of this room, I'm dog meat and he's a hungry little bull terrier. And it's not as bad as signing something. I shake his hand. He looks me in the eye. We've got a deal, Ridgie. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. Ridgie, we've got a deal. (laughs) But I can't say it. I can't say we've got a deal. The makings of a deal? That sounds better, more accurate. But a deal? <laughs> I'm intimidated listening to that. Yeah. And then eventually he does go and sign with Super League and has to face an angry Bob Fulton who believes that they had a deal. So again, this comes from Matthew Ridge's book. I bowl in there and he looks at me and says, sit down, Ridgie, have a seat. I can see he's not happy, not at all. He says, mate, we had a deal. Yeah, I know, Bose, but we didn't. I didn't sign anything. You wouldn't let me out of the room unless I, you know. Ridgie, we had a fucking deal, mate. I know, Bose, but I've signed a contract with these other guys. Bob shakes his head in resignation. (laughs) And in the face of this, Matthew Ridge shows some real balls. So he comes before not only Bozo, but in the ARL offices with Ken Arthurson, James Packer, and Phil Gould, and is is copying it from all of them. James Packer saying, you haven't done the unthinkable, have you? And when he said, look, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going with Super League. And Bozo says... How can you trust them? Matthew Ridge said, put it this way. You meet someone, you like them, and you go with what you feel. I believe what they're trying to do for the game is good. You blokes only started shelling out money because all of a sudden they're trying to take your game away. So what does that say about you blokes? Wow. Like pretty ballsy to do that to not only his club boss, but the boss of the game, one of the richest men in the country. That's a very bloody good point. (laughs) (laughs) Which will be talked about again and again throughout this saga, but... Again, some moralistic bullshit from Phil Gould saying, as soon as our backs were turned, Ridge picked up his contract and ran down to Super League with it and signed with them that night for $300,000 sign-on and four hundred a year for seven years, according to the figures revealed in the federal court. I felt sorry for Bob Fulton because one of his own players had done that to him. I just couldn't stomach what Ridge did that night and how he came to be so critical of the ARL. Like, it's more of this ARL, like, handshake deals stuff. Yeah, yeah. When Ridge was being coerced by Fulton... Just as much as anything going on in the Super well, League. Not so. even Kuwait stood over. <laughs> but why is he? He's the one that's supposed to take 100000 less and 50000 less on the sign-on. Yeah. When everybody else is supposed to get the best for themselves. And he's supposed to do the honourable thing on a handshake. Yeah. I, I will say, Gould did say that, and he said it in a catty way, saying he shook hands on an ARL deal with Fulton, which was worth a lot more than I thought he was worth compared to what some other players were getting. <laughs> At that stage of his career, he's getting a $250,000 sign-on is comparable with what Brad Fittler and Tim Brasher got. Like, I, th- I think he did do well out of that ARL deal. Yeah, yeah. And $300,000 sign-on and four hundred for seven years from Super League. That's uh, slight overs. Four hundred for seven years. Bloody <laughs> hell. And, and so Matthew Ridge does lay it out plainly in his book, one of the few throughout this period to actually speak the truth about it. Now, I have to be honest here. I like Super League's concepts, but if they said, hey, we have the players' needs at heart, but we can only afford to offer you 100000 less than the ARL at this stage, I'd have said sorry. 
It doesn't matter what people say. Everybody's got the dollar signs in their eyes. It's actually refreshing honesty. Yeah. And then once he does sign, he really takes up the mantle for Super League, not only bagging out the ARL in the press, but doing some recruiting on the sly. He was the first one to put it to Ian Roberts that don't sign anything with the ARL. These blokes are... Speak to them first, you know, which Ian Roberts subsequently did and, and did a real solid for Nick Kosef at the same time. So he asked Nick Kosef what he'd been offered by the ARL. Nick Kosef told him and Ridge said, I, I can do better for you at Super League. So he takes him into a meeting with Graham Lowe and Michael O'Connor and said, all right, Nick wants a hundred grand sign on. Uh, and then on top of that, he wants 200 for the first year, 250 for the second and 300 for the third. And in his book, he says, Nick's got an old crappy car. So I add in, he also wants a car. Nick looks at me as if I'm an absolute idiot. Mike and Lowy say, just give us a few minutes. They disappear into another room to discuss it with John Rebo. Nick's embarrassed by how much I've asked for. Jesus, Ridgie, he said, are you taking the piss or what? You got to be kidding. They come back and say, okay, Nick, we agree to your terms except for one thing. You can't have the car. <laughs> and so Kosef ultimately takes that Super League offer back to the ARL and gets a big bump up in his ARL deal. But he had a handshake with John Reba. <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that. Like, Gould's so indignant that Ridge would do that, but it, it's all sweet <laughs> if, if the situation's reversed. How did the ARL um, sell Nick Kosef? So, so we've got the best orthopedic surgeons. <laughs> It's just so funny hearing Matthew Ridge's niggle off the field. <laughs> He's hilarious. And uh, it got too far when he went to Steve Menzies with the same pitch. I, I reckon I can get you a lot more at Super League. Bob Fulton finds out about this and calls Matthew Ridge into a meeting where tore strips would probably be the way a journalist would, would write <laughs> this up. In, in Matthew Ridge's book, he writes, Bozo says, look, mate, enough's enough. If you don't stop trying to poach my players to Super League, I'll take you to court. I know he's not mucking around, so I say, okay, Bose, fair enough. You won't hear another word about it from me. <laughs> so let's talk about Ian Roberts for a bit. So he approached Super League more out of due diligence to see what the situation was, what was going on, what their pitch was, and quickly got sold on the vision and the looking after the players aspect of it. Now, was he already like in the in the concussion? Was he, was he already knocked around by then? Well, yeah. I mean, he'd been playing since, what, like 87, 88, mm. like... He must have been in bad shape because like, it was only one or two years later his knees were had it. And, mm. uh, yeah, I can see why you'd be thinking that. Yeah. And on top of that, the ARL strategy didn't endear them to him either. So there was a, a carrot and a stick approach. Ken Arthurson addressing Manly and saying that Manly would be looked after and sign with the ARL, we've got your back. But also adding in anyone who signs with Super League will be banned from rep footy and, and you know, those kind of threats. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> And he, Ian Roberts was another one who got sold by Lachlan Murdoch. And again, they became good friends after it. So Ridge and Roberts, I mean, Roberts especially, but Ridge was 26 at the time and looking towards the end of his career as well. They're both quite outspoken in why they signed with Super League and they had those post-football considerations in place, which is why it's particularly galling how quickly they were painted as, as mercenaries in the press. So this is a Sherlock column in the Rugby League Week that uh, it is illustrative of this. Letters of warm appreciation are on their way from the Australian Rugby League to Matthew Ridge. I know the gang at Phillips Street were deeply appreciative of Matthew's astute assessment of the ARL, as reported in Monday's Telly Mirror when Ridge said, they haven't looked after us, they ha never have and they never will. Matthew had paused briefly from counting the noughts on his Super League check to speak to the press. 
And of course, the ordinary fans hear some of this stuff and the situation gets even more inflamed. So Ian Roberts had some lovely old ladies who used to write him letters and send him birthday cards <laughs> and all the rest of it. And he met one of these ladies on the street and she mentioned who she was and, and said hello. And in Ian Roberts' words, he said, I was blank for a second. It didn't register. Then I recalled all the nice birthday cards and things. Feeling warm and friendly, I smile and go, yes, how are you? It's lovely to meet you. Then she just launched, swearing like crazy at me about my disloyalty. <laughs> I didn't know what hit me. I remembered her angry letter by this time and I tried to calm her down. Eventually, I explained my position to her and my point of view and she was fine. <laughs> I mean, that's rugby league fandom right there. <laughs> can you imagine, we say it every episode, but can you imagine if Twitter was around then? Oh my God. It would have been an absolute <laughs> cesspit. <laughs> I don't think I could have lived through that if Twitter was around. Uh, but you have to remember with Ian Roberts how much he was going through at the time. So 1995 was the year that he eventually came out after struggling with the decision for some time. So he posed for a gay magazine earlier in the year and was originally planning to come out at that time but didn't do it. You can consider that almost a soft launch yeah, yeah. for coming out. So later that year, he appeared at the Mardi Gras and was received as a hero, which was, I think, another... He's actually spoken about it. That, that was another thing that appealed to him about Super League. You had these young, progressive-type guys like Lachlan Murdoch as opposed to dinosaur-type <laughs> mentalities on the ARL side. But his book also notes the the hypocrisy of this stance when you, you had the, the Telegraph, not exactly you know, <laughs> bastions of... <laughs> gay rights and he'd struggled with the attitudes of his teammates and opponents for a number of years even when that was done in a, a light-hearted way so there's a, a story about an incident with him and terry hill in training which if you know terry hill you can kind of imagine how that might have gone down and, and terry hill not being vindictive and he was good friends with ian roberts but you know saying some pretty nasty <laughs> things in jest and you know, and then you can imagine what someone like Rex Mossop might say once he decides to pose in a men's magazine. He doesn't want male genitalia pushed down his throat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in the midst of this vitriol and, and everything else going on and wrestling with all this stuff inside, like it's a it's a massive year for Ian Roberts. Yeah, I can see what appealed to him. Brave new world. Mm. He's living his true life all of a sudden. Yeah. i got to say, Ian... Roberts has had a very non-linear relationship with the ARL in terms of the sexuality, you know, that it seems like there's backward steps with every forward step and he's come across as very disillusioned at times about what the ARL or, and then later the NRL were doing and, you know, Trent the flight steward and all the rest of it. <laughs> so I don't want to minimise all that, but I, I just wanted to end this section with a, a comment by Mario Fennick, which shows you some of the progress that was made by Ian Roberts coming out. Until Ian Roberts came out, we thought all gay guys were weak. I had no idea, but he sharpened me up. With everything he's been through, what a great man, fun to be around and caring. This is the best part about it is it had to be a hard man. It had to be an enforcer yeah. to get through it. Mm. Because you had to be able to physically knock blokes out if need be, yeah. <laughs> which you could do. So there's a, a lot more on this aspect of his life in his book, Finding Out, which is a beautiful read. It's just a bit outside our remit at this point, but it's a story I'd like to return to at, at some point. But we'll turn now to Manley's on-field efforts 
and how Super League affected them throughout 1995. So it would have been easy for Super League to have been a disruption for them with the Ridge and Roberts things going on, with their coach absent for much of the year recruiting players. <laughs> and in the end, in 1995, they finished minor premiers, equal with Canberra after both teams only lost two regular season games. And the catch cry was no unrest in the nest. So after that initial confrontation with Ridge, Fulton decided that the issue wasn't going to get between them and their success. As Matthew Ridge tells it, right, he says, we don't carry this on from here, okay? We just get on with the job again now. Cool with me, mate. And that was it. It's funny about Bozo. We always paint him as this uh, godfather type pulling the, the marionette strings, but he's just a competitor at heart yeah. and a footballer at heart. Cause... Exactly. And Ian Roberts, despite all this and despite the the later issues with the ARL, which would see him sit out in 1996, had nothing but respect for Bob Fulton saying this. Through it all, I had newfound respect for Bose. I can't speak highly enough of him. First when it came to the whole gay issue and then this. He was great. The thing was, he thought he was doing what was best for his game. That's the way he thinks of it, his game. He did what he thought was right and I did what I thought was right. But Bozo's too much of a professional to let that affect what was happening at Manly. He wanted to win the premiership. He's too smart to cut off his nose to spite his face. Not very rugby league then, is he? <laughs> and on it went. The Super League became a non-issue inside Manly as, the, as they focused on dominating the competition that year. But once again, when you have your coach, also the Australian coach, and so closely linked to the ARL, when you had the boss of the ARL so closely linked to Manly, in a volatile situation like this, those already trenchant views of favoritism are only going to get reinforced and heightened and that's exactly what happened throughout the 1995 season and you touched on it last week that in this era bad looks weren't the biggest problem but it still provided free ammunition for news limited and that manifested itself in a couple of incidents involving manly and canberra the first was manly was scheduled to play canberra on a friday night after origin which the league then pushed back to sunday because too many players were going to be affected by origin. Just uh, doctoring the draw. Yeah, which again is a good thing to do in principle, but when it, one of those teams is completely unaffected by origin <laughs> because of everything that's going on, it's always going to lead to cries of favoritism. Tim Sheen's coming out and saying, this is a blatant case of the ARL looking after Manly. It's incidents like these which convince us we did the right thing by joining Super League. These statements infuriated Arco, who then inadvertently proved their point. So <laughs> I'll, I'll read this quote. <laughs> when Canberra had all the players involved in State of Origin last year, they never stopped screaming or complaining, whinging or whining about how their players had to back up. But someone's given an extra day or so to get over it and they're complaining. They complain when it's them. They complain when it's against them. They're never happy. <laughs> Like, how could he not have thought about that for two seconds before making that statement? I don't know whether he thinks he's pulling the wool over people's eyes with regarding the manly love, or he just doesn't care. It's funny, in his book, he talks about how he got hammered in the press in the 1996 grand final for enjoying Manly's victory too much. <laughs> And he said, well, I, don't, I shouldn't have to hide that I go for Manly. I've been involved with this club for, you know, however long. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Like the boss of the league, like enthusiastically. What's the point of pretending <laughs> that? Yeah, I, I actually don't have a problem with it. It's not a good look. <laughs> but I mean, everyone knows. Uh, yeah. Be like Fatty trying to go like, oh, this is a good game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so in that same game, the Manly versus Canberra game, 
Mark Carroll put a high shot on David Ferner, which everyone watching thought it was, a, you know, if not a send-off, then definitely, you know, a few weeks on the sidelines. He initially didn't even get cited for it uh, before ultimately getting a week, but that was just before Origin, so he didn't even miss a club match for Manly, which that doesn't necessarily mean bias. You see inconsistencies in the judiciary all the time. Yeah. But, you know, as a Rugby League Week column puts it, the league would be much better advised to retain its dignity and play a dead straight bat. In the matter of providing an absolutely level playing field for the completion of this rather sad 1995 premiership, the league would be well advised to play it dead straight. You've got to be like Gandhi in this situation. Turn the other cheek. Mm. But anything too nefarious is pretty easy to refute. I mean, you just have to look at the grand final result for that, where two very crucial calls went against Manly. Yeah. And Graham Annesley, for all he was willing to be front and centre of Super League's PR campaign. We mentioned last week dressing up in the Super <laughs> League ref's uniform and refereeing an under-8s game. When it came out that the the refs were giving Manly an armchair ride to the Premiership, he came out in public and said that to suggest there's something underhand in the way referees are approaching the game is ridiculous. I know there's no way whatsoever the blokes controlling the game would accept such a directive. They'd resign before allowing themselves to fall into that trap. It goes without saying, anyone that would be a referee yeah. takes it seriously. But it's still a, a nice thing for Graham Annesley to do, yeah, which he didn't have to. A real gentleman's, uh, a real brotherhood move that I like that. Definitely. But at that point, Arco had been hearing those same cries of bias for 20 years or so, and you could see how much it infuriated him. <laughs> I, I love his, his comments on the matter. It was put to him that people were saying that the ARL wanted Manly to win and, and were giving them benefits as a result of that. He said, anyone who says that is a sneaking, sniveling liar. <laughs> it's like those words out of an old school guy's like his mouth is like terrible swearing. <laughs> um, so that was an aspect of the PR war that the ARL would really struggle with over the course of that season. But let's go back to April 1 and let's look at how the ARL almost from the start framed the narrative and I'd say had a resounding victory in the PR war. Comes back to your comments earlier in the series about rugby league people just not reacting well to nuance. Yeah. That is needed. It's like pro wrestling, villains and heroes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's so funny how quickly the public were willing to anoint Arco their folk hero. <laughs> yeah. Like he, he went from being the, the reviled manly you know homer to borderline corrupt <laughs> in their minds to you know this saint-like resistance hero <laughs> and had some willing salesmen on the arl side who i don't think there's any malice or, or any underhanded reasons for it. i think they all genuinely believed in him and the work he was doing but it's something like this from john quayle in Ken Arthurson, Murdoch League found itself matched against a fighter of great pluck and principle. I doubt anyone else could have done what he did. In those early desperate weeks, he was on call virtually 24 hours a day, and never once did he back away from the task at hand. In meetings at press conferences, out there meeting the people, he was our captain. The loyalty of Quayle. Yeah, and the, the reciprocal nature of that loyalty. Yeah. It's, it's truly beautiful, but... Arco wore it well, that mantle of folk hero. However, you know, however much he didn't want it, once it was thrust upon him, he he definitely rose to to that title. Unlike Che Guevara with his motorbike around South America, he was driving <laughs> a statesman in from the Spit Bridge. So th this is one quote from 1995. Many people have told me they respect what I'm doing, but I'm not looking for acc accolades. 
nor am I looking for a job for myself. My time in rugby league is coming to an end. I'm far from being in the first flush of youth, but I'm fighting for what I believe is right. The way I feel about this issue is they'll have to kill me to stop me. <laughs> I wonder if that was ever discussed. <laughs> and you get a sense there, but the ARL and the press really laid it on thick with the war analogies throughout this whole season. So Arthurson would exclusively refer to the Super League war as the Pearl Harbor raid. <laughs> and you can see it everywhere. And we've been guilty of it as much as anyone. Oh, yeah. And however apt those comparisons are, when you read so many of them in a concentrated period, as I've done over the last few months, it becomes such a writing crutch because it is so easy. But it's a podcast crutch. I, I know. So we've been guilty of it too. And I basically all the little opening monologues I write, I have to now cross out any war analogies because it's just so easy to, <laughs> to reach for them. But well, I, I listen to these episodes well, at least twice because I love them. I love like, <laughs> hearing what you've got to say. Because when we're talking, I don't really sort of take it in as much, you know? Mm. Anyway, but like when, when I hear all my war talk, I'm like, people died in these wars. <laughs> this is about some idiots kicking a football around. <laughs> I'm going to go back to Brad Fittler's book uh, to give an example of, of the way it was always written about. Wayne and I went into the meeting with James Packer, Gus, Bob Fulton and John Quayle. I reckon it must have been that way for Churchill in the British Warren. <laughs> Setting into a bunker for a fight to the death. They were grim-faced and defiant. They said the ARL competition will stay alive. Channel 9 and Optus Vision are backing us all the way. <laughs> we won't give in to the rebels. It was hard to know whether we were talking rugby league or revolution in the streets. I was expecting trumpets and a drum roll any minute, flags dropping from the ceiling and a band of angels blowing trumpets descending from the heavens. What a bunch of crap. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and again, Super League were calling it the war room, so it's not like it was on the ARL side alone. I mean, it's closer to Dr. Strangelove than bloody anything else, isn't it? But yeah, so we're, we're going to install a RLD swear jar for any further war analogy drops. A moratorium. <laughs> what about dogs of war? Can we mention that? Yeah, that, that's eternal. That's, <laughs> that's grandfathered in. And the other aspect of it was how quick the ARL were to make it all about greed. So super greed became the catch cry. This is when I, even as a kid, like the infantile nature of the Arco is the hero, Rebo is the villain. I saw straight through that as a teenager. And the greed thing was just even more transparent. And all wrapped up in that is the pay TV thing. And these are still the same lines that are getting thrown out by idiots 25 <laughs> years later. But when they went too heavy-handed on the battle of the, the common man versus the, the super rich... The ARL could deliver some easy free kicks for Super League. So at one point, Ken Arthurson came out and said, when was the last time you saw Ken Cowley or Rupert Murdoch on the hill eating a pie? Uh, and in Roy Masters' book, Tim Sheens responds to that by saying, Ken Arthurson's living in his own world too. I really laughed when I heard that comment. When was the last time you saw Ken Arthurson on the hill eating a pie? They're insulated in their nice air-conditioned boxes, drinking their sponsor's beer or Chardonnay. <laughs> Like, it's funny how easily the ARL were able to sell themselves as the battlers when for years they've been dogged by the ivory tower criticism. It was like a switch. Yeah. And then they got sympathetic media to do the same. So on that Sunday, Sunday the 2nd of April, John Quayle called up Alan Jones and got him to record a statement about Super League to be played after the footy on 2UE on the Sunday Arvo. And from that point on, it was like the die was cast. This was the narrative, super greed. 
But there was one area where they could legitimately go after news in that rugby league should be controlled by a rugby league organisation. So that was an easy part of the, the PR war to sell, saying these guys don't care about rugby league and they're coming in to steal rugby league. I think they could have framed it a whole lot better, Super League, and said, look, we're going to control the media side. We're going to have rugby league people control the game. Everyone be rest assured that the game's in safe hands, yeah. etc. They didn't do that. They tried to do it, but it was always a, a reactionary thing. Yeah. They thought that the shininess of it all would like blind the public yeah. when it did the exact opposite. Rugby League people were keen on change. And when you say this is going to be a monumental change, <laughs> we go, hang on. And the last part of the PR war I wanted to talk about was the concept of loyalty. So that quickly became as overused as vision, and I'd argue more so. It didn't get the same backlash, though. No, it didn't It, it did all. for me. Paid for loyalty. And as... Anyone on the Super League side would say loyalty means different things to different people. Like Laurie Daly came out. I actually thought this was a really nice statement in Laurie Daly's book. The word loyalty was another casualty of the Super League war. It was bought and sold, misused and abused. But as far as I was concerned, loyalty played a big part in my decision to sign with Super League, as I'm sure it did for Ricky and plenty of other Canberra players. We stayed loyal to each other, and we honestly believe that signing with Super League was the only way of keeping the team together. I love the bond between those two as well. It's, mm. it's Quayle and Arco-esque. Yeah, yeah. They're different people too. Yeah. And for the players on the Super League side, that loyalty thing really left a bad taste, especially because there were a lot of comments along the line of whenever we asked for money in the past, we were shot down. They didn't want to insure them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, they'd always cry poor, but suddenly when they need money, they can they can find it, which is a bit misguided when you understand where the money was coming from. But at the same time, you've got John Quayle trumpeting his $11 million in cash reserves every year. <laughs> you can see players going, well. Yeah. <laughs> and on loyalty, I think one of the most striking examples of how that concept was misused was in the way the Adam Ritson saga played out throughout 1995. So just to finish this chapter, we're going to look at the Adam Ritson story and the part that played in the Super League war. So just to start it off, it's crazy how quickly the Adam Ritson narrative played out. Like from, you know, this hype monster to ARL poster boy to tragic figure, all in the space of a little over two years. Incredible. I remember it all as well. Yeah, yeah. I remember it all from the schoolboy to the uh, debut all through the media. First of all, we've got to talk about how a 16-year-old kid can look 45. <laughs> how big was he? <laughs> but I wonder if like 20-year-olds today like know the name or can understand what a massive deal he was in 1995. He was all, he's almost been forgotten apart from the odd follow-up story in the Telegraph. Yeah. It's sad. They seem to do it every 10 years or so. I wonder what Adam Ritson's up to. Yeah. And I'm so happy he got his money early though. Yeah. So let's talk about that rise. So as you said, made his first grade debut at 16. Think about that in the forwards. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. So he was blooded by Arthur Beats and, and maybe because of that, but from that time on, that was always the comparison that he was the next Arthur Beatson. Beatson, who was coaching Cronulla at the time, faced a lot of resistance from the Cronulla board who thought that he was too young for good, good reason. So, Could you imagine? Think about when you were 16 years old. Do you want to go play in the front row in first grade rugby league? <laughs> So he made his debut at 16 years, 303 days. So the fifth youngest of all time and the youngest for 70 years. But interestingly, just as his career was ending, you had Josh Hannay being blocked for debuting 
for debuting at the Cowboys age 16 years and 185 days, which would have made him the second youngest debutant of all time. Incredible in its own right, but playing in the centers compared to the front row yeah. is a different kettle of fish. But it's funny how much that defined Josh Hannay's career. Yeah. Like the bloke played for 10 years, 150 games, played for Queensland. Yeah. But the first thing I think of when I think of Josh Hannay is, didn't really go on with it, did he? I really don't think it's good for anybody. No. Nah. This yeah. teenage debuting. Mm. But I mean, Adam Ritson handled it when he came in and Arthur Beetson was operating under the, if you're good enough, you're old enough principle. And almost from the start, he held up in any company he was in. It's incredible. And so 1994 was the year the, the, the hype train really got going for Adam Ritson. And I think you, you touched on it by saying he was 16 and looked 45. It was such, not only was he young, but he was this, you know, man mountain kind of He had look. the, the uh, Webkey Michael Wayman body. Yeah, but with the baby face that yeah, made yeah. it even <laughs> easier to, to yeah. sell this story. So there, there were a lot of stories in the press throughout 1994 uh, I'll just read this one. This was actually a Danny Widler piece, which is illustrative of the type of stories you were getting about Adam Ritson. Danny Widler must have been about 16. <laughs> Since Marion Ritson gave birth to a 10-pound, 10 10-ounce 10 baby 18 years ago, Adam has been growing at a rapid rate. No, he's really big, huge to be precise. At his present weight of 125 kilos, Adam Ritson is the heaviest man in the game. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, in that same article talking about him quoted as saying he's got to watch that he doesn't get too big and, you know, it's he's had problems with his weight and, and all the rest of it, which uh, just for discussion, if not for what happened, are we certain he would have gone on with it as expected? Like I, I find most players who have that battle with the weight, they en end up losing that battle. Could have gone either way, but I think so. I think he's a real footballer. Mm. But... As I said, he burst onto the scene and really made his mark in a game against Newcastle in 1994 where he was copying targeted abuse from Paul Harrigan and Mark Sargent. And you forget how big 125 was back mm, then, though. Like yeah. Now that's not that huge. Yeah, Still yeah, big. Yeah. But back then, 95 kilos was a forward. Mm. Yeah, he was a definite outlier in that era. And when you're an 18-year-old player who teams go out of their way to target because of the damage you can cause... It says a lot. And then he went on with it in 1995 in the early part of the year. Basically, in the press, any forward pack coming up against Cronulla were going to get measured by how they did against Ritson, what their tactic was, who won the points battle. In a preseason game, it was him versus Mark Geyer, and he came out on top. And these stories were repeated all through the early part of the season. It's incredible. Even I've forgotten how big a deal he was. But that hype inevitably led to backlash uh, so I'll read this. This is a Sherlock column in the Rugby League Week after he made the City team. Ritson is the shape of league to come, living proof that Rugby League won't be played at all in the future, but will merely be discussed in the newspapers. To catch a glimpse of Ritson in a match this year has been akin to seeing a battalion of Yetis skiing down Everest. Thanks to a wonky ankle, the big bloke hasn't given a yelp, but none of that matters. The fact is that Ritson has had great publicity. Adam Ritson is in the Sydney team because he's had good press. All footballers take note. But then one week later, having egg on his face and having to say, this column was a touch unkind to young Adam Ritson this week, suggesting that he was a lucky boy to be in the Sydney side. Well, he was, but I couldn't be more delighted at the way he played in the mud at Wollongong the other night, going on to say how he 
dominate and rose to the class. Yeah, what a big. But by the end of 1995, he still wasn't the superstar that was predicted because of injury problems that had dogged him throughout the year. How can you expect a prop to be peaking at 18? Yeah. <laughs> so that leads to Adam Ritson as ARL poster boy. And that all came because he was the ARL's first signee once Super League broke. So he was in Perth with Cronulla and held out because he wanted to speak to his manager who wasn't present. And his manager was Steve Gillis, who uh, plays a big role in the Super League story. And the Adam Ritson affair was basically the making of him as a player agent. So he'd left his job to go full-time as a player manager the year before. He had, you know, the likes of, you know, Dan Staines, Martin Masella, these types of players on his books and took a punt on Adam Ritson because... Obviously, all the all the big names had all been taken up by other bigger, more powerful agents. So when you're in that position, you've got to take a punt on some young players and hope that one of them breaks. So that was his strategy in getting written. So he said, I looked around and honestly felt that Adam was potentially the biggest name in the game. He became one of only two or three players that I actively chased. So he chased and got him and suddenly Super League hits and Steve Gillis is unwittingly thrown into the middle of it, you know, getting engaged in these bidding wars with his star signing. Uh, and Mike Coleman actually opens his book with the Adam Ritson saga and and tells it very well. And he gives the impression of Steve Gillis that he was very green and out of his depth. And there's a couple of uh, examples that stood out to me. Uh, so I'm just going to read this from the Super League book. At 5pm, his old green Mazda spluttered along Anzac Parade. Gillis's phone rang. It was Shane Richardson. Where are you, he said. We're at the airport waiting. Five minutes later, Gillis was with Richardson, Malcolm Node, and a News Limited solicitor in the Golden Wing Club of the Ansett Terminal. His shorts and two UE continuous call T-shirt were in contrast to the slick attire of the two <laughs> News Limited <laughs> negotiators. <laughs> but side note, rugby league officials' ability to find a Chinese restaurant is second only to 1970s Sydney gangsters. <laughs> And then at a later point in the story, Steve Gillis met with Adam Ritson and his family uh, at a bar as they were waiting to see what would happen. He went to the bar, ordered a beer, and then asked them what they wanted. They all had soft drinks. So he's there, you know, supposed to be the, the professional agent, and he's sitting there with a beer. <laughs> I think once you got the TUE shirt and the shorts, <laughs> I think it's over. Have the beer. <laughs> he said... Didn't I feel like an idiot? Here I was supposed to be the one in charge of the situation and out of habit I've ordered a beer. It was the worst tasting drink I've ever had in my life. <laughs> but he quickly got up to speed and the the book gives the impression that he really cared about Ritson and to this day Ritson still speaks fondly of him and what he did for him. So this was his approach to Adam Ritson signing one way or the other. At the time I didn't have a clue what the other players were getting but I honestly considered Adam the most promising player in the game. It was impossible to compare him to anyone else, and I wasn't prepared to let him go either way without finding out what his market value was. And he was in a position to do that because on that Friday night in Perth, when Adam Ritson got before Malcolm Node and got offered a contract, he instantly said, I, I want to speak to Steve Gillis, I want to speak to my manager. And he was showing sense that players who'd been playing for 10 years didn't have and there's something about the the wisdom in naivety, you know. Yeah, well, I think it, it was so young. He's just like, you know, it's an adult. I've got to find yeah, an yeah, adult. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm lost. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
he kept resisting, showed some considerable strength of character in doing so, um, and inadvertently negotiated a 24-hour get-out clause. So Malcolm Node, just to wrap it up, said, look, how about just sign? We'll put in a 24-hour clause. You can speak to your manager in the morning and we'll go from there. And so Adam Ritson agreed to that because, you know, the rest of the boys were waiting to hit the town. Signed the contract, $20,000 sign-on with the 24-hour get-out clause. And then in the middle of the night, calls up Steve Gillis, leaves a message saying, Super League's on. So that midnight phone call led to Steve Gillis ringing up Phil Gould the next morning and thus inadvertently lit the fuse of the whole war. It's so funny, Adam Ritson's the uh, the gunpowder. So at this point, Adam Ritson was everything to the ARL because he was literally all they had to hang on to at that point. The way Mike Coleman's book tells it, Arthurson spoke for a few minutes, then looked at the group, the life back in his eyes. Adam Ritson's holding out, he said, scribbling down a phone number. His manager wants to know if we're still in the game. Arthurson punched the numbers into the phone. Steve, he said, Ken Arthurson speaking. I understand Adam Ritson is undecided about his future. Well, Steve, I'm talking to you now on behalf of the ARL. You must not let Adam stay with Super League. We'll be running this competition next year. Believe me, we're going to sort this mess out. And the next call Steve Gillis got was from James Packer, assuring him that there would be something for Adam Ritson if he stayed with the ARL. Steve Gillis saying, how can I pin my hopes on this? Like, is anyone else signing? What's going on? And James Packer said, Steve, you don't know me and I've never met you, but I'm sure you've heard of me and my family and we pride ourselves on our principles and our honesty. If I tell you Adam Ritson will be looked after, he'll be looked after. So with that, Steve Gillis knew that there was going to be something on either side. And because of that, they didn't need to be rushed on signing that Super League contract. So he took that information to the Ritson family. So John Ritson... Adam Ritson's father was very involved in his career and was getting close with Steve Gillis as a result of that. And Steve Gillis said, look, there's something there with the ARL. The only issue is we have to give that sign-on check back to News Limited tonight. So without even a firm contract offer on the table, they had to decide whether they were going to go with Super League or go with the ARL. So Shane Richardson called up Steve Gillis and said, that 20,000 sign on now it's 50,000 and on the saga went again so Steve Gillis took this offer to John Ritson and and John Ritson said what do you reckon what do we do to which Steve Gillis said well he'll be on the open market in 12 months and this super league thing could blow the market sky high I've always thought he could get between 200 and 300 a season if he takes the 150 I'm not sure he'll be getting what he's worth to which John Ritson nodded and said exactly what I think so with that they decided to reject the super league offer not necessarily because they were definitely going with the ARL, but just thinking that if the money's there now, it'll still be there in a week. You know, there's nothing lost by holding out. Mm-hmm. And Gillis acknowledges that the, the Packer call was everything. Without that assurance that the ARL had the means to match Super League or surpass Super League, as his, his manager, he would have been crazy to not tell him to sign. You can't underestimate the value of that brand, the Packer brand. Because mm. like you say, they were at one third of the uh, Optus Vision deal. Yeah, yeah. but who's, who's Jeff Cousins to the public? Yeah. No one knows. James Packer, everyone knows what that means. It lends credibility mm. to the ARL. And so the next day, the, the Sunday afternoon, he went to James Packer's place, shook hands and signed the deal, and Adam Ritson was officially the ARL's first signing. 
And almost from that moment on, he became a pawn in the PR game for the ARL. So that began unofficially with Ray Hadley announcing on 2UE on the Sunday afternoon that Super League had tried to coerce Adam Ritson into signing. Adam Ritson heard that and said, that, that's not what happened. They were pretty good to me. So Steve Gillis rang up 2UE. He worked casually for them, hence the continuous call team shirt. <laughs> so Steve Gillis then calls up 2UE to try to set the record straight that that's not what happened, uh, to which Hadley replied, well, you shouldn't go around blurting stuff out around town if it's not true. <laughs> and Gillis said, Ray, I haven't spoken to you since it begun. Hadley replied, yeah, well, you're not going on air, see ya. And then questioned about this in the aftermath, Ray Hadley said that he had it on impeccable authority that what he said on air was true and that Steve Gillis had told people that Adam Ritson was coerced into signing uh, and closed it by saying, I believe what I said was the truth and he just has to live with it. <laughs> and, and that, from the moment that got out, it ruined Steve Gillis's relationship with Super League and made it very difficult for him to deal with them from then on. So in a later meeting uh, where he was representing Michael Butner, he got told that nothing said should leave this room and had Super League heavies glowering at him saying they couldn't trust him. How rugby league is it to hold a I can't deal with this manager type feud in the middle of a desperation <laughs> where you need every player you can get? <laughs> but to be fair to News Limited, there is an idea that it was a fair cop that Gillis was saying something. So a story came out in the Australian, which it's a news limited paper, so I don't know. But so a story came out that had a Super League contract reprinted in the article and Super League officials believed that it was Adam Ritson's contract. And so I find it a bit galling that they're uh, you know, upset about saying they're coercing people when they're holding cloak and dagger type meetings and not, not letting people call their wives. <laughs> it's like, come on. But following on from Hadley, the ARL very quickly took up the mantle and and again some of this isn't in any inherently cynical way like there's a lot of genuine admiration for the stance that adam ritson took so a comment like this from ken arthurson i remember seeing ritson on television that night standing up and declaring his loyalty to the arl and i was very moved we knew we were making headway upstairs with signing players but ritson was the first player who had stood up and declared his support so publicly i still remember that night so there's a lot of genuine sentiment behind that. And I've got no doubt that Arthurson is genuine in his admiration for Ritson and the actions he took. But the way the ARL then took that and ran with it, that kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth. But also when we've just been through the fact that they were just looking for the best deal for their son. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this, this is what the last word on the subject is that Steve Gillis said this. Personally, I don't think Super League valued him highly enough. If Super League had approached me and I could have gone in there and said, well, Adam's 18, Arthur picked him in first grade when he was 16, we believe he's worth 250 on the open market, things would have been different. If Super League had offered him that sort of money straight off, he would have been Super League, no drama, but they didn't, and that was that. Yeah. So just like everything else, it came down to money, but it became this heroic stance for the ARL, uh, who used it to their advantage on a regular basis. It was usually framed along the lines of this 18-year-old kid showed more ticker than a lot of them. <laughs> you know, comments along that lines. You had Adam Ritson out in public pushing the party line. Comments like, I realise remaining with the ARL was the right thing to do. And apart from always dreaming of representing Australia, I believe it has the best setup and I respect the way it's run. <laughs> now, so, so I don't know for sure that he was coached on saying that, but you see a number of different comments from him 
repeating similar lines that I don't think there's any way in God's green earth that he would say I like the way it's run. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, I don't know. It seems pretty clear to me that he was given some instructions on how and what to say to the press. The one amazing thing here is he's the only one of all the players not playing more ticker, more nouse to yeah. actually speak to a manager yeah, yeah. rather than go, you'll sign. <laughs> and so the way he was used by the press and the bad taste it left in my mouth is best highlighted by what we will discuss at greater length in a future episode, the Fatso Vaughan incident, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that breadcrumb there who any, to anyone who knows the story. Uh, and for anyone who doesn't, you'll be hearing about it in a future chapter. But <laughs> basically at a staged event for the press, for the ARL to talk about the fight they were fighting, Adam Ritson was one of the, the speakers up on stage and was being asked questions by the press about a question along the lines of, were you pressured to sign with Super League? Uh, and Adam Ritson replied, no, they were pretty good to me. And the question was repeated, weren't you pushed? And he's saying, no, 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 it was, it was, it was all sweet. I just... So to go with the ARL in the end, and this kept on going, and, and Ken Arthurson stepped in and said, hang on, I, I think he's answered your questions, you know, trying to shut it down. And when Piers Ackerman in the audience said, let him answer the question, Ken Arthurson saying, now, wait a minute, I've just said we're not having any more questions to Adam Ritson. Uh, and then the situation got inflamed from there. Uh, abuse held at Piers Ackerman and Fatty referred to him as a fat heap of shit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And in his article, Piers Ackerman wrote, Mr. Vorton then hastened to bring the whole fast to an end by declaring there would be no more questions, despite the clear desire of the majority of working reporters present to hear more from Mr. Ritson and perhaps other players not cowed into submission by the overbearing, arrogant and rude league leadership. It's question of how the press think they've got this God-given right to have answers and access to everybody they want. It's like... You know, he doesn't want to answer any questions, he doesn't have to. But does Fatty Vaughan have to call the journalist a fat heap of shit? <laughs> I remember I remember looking at that uh, as a teenager on the news and going, geez, this is getting out of hand. <laughs> so as I said, we're going to break down that incident in, in a lot greater depth because it really deserves <laughs> much more coverage. But I, I just wanted to discuss it for the Adam Ritson as- aspect and the way that Arthurson would, you know, was, was there shutting him down because he wasn't, you know, giving the right narrative. <laughs> but so with the signing done, the the rest of the year saw a, a mini bidding war among the remaining ARL players. He eventually signed with Parramatta, uh, who went into 1996 with a very stacked team. And it was in that 1996 season that his career ended. In a game against Canberra, 30 seconds into it, John Lomax hitting him high. Uh, being instantly sent off as a result, uh, and Adam Ritson, uh, you know, taken off for the game. So they'd clearly said to Lomax, I mean, he's capable of doing it himself, but they've clearly said, go out there and make a mark on Ritson early. And that directive, whether it was internal or external from coaching staff, has saved his life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, the, the Canberra coaching staff weren't too happy with the way Lomax did it because they they sent him home on the the plane early. He was playing his third game back from a suspension. Poor John Lomax. <laughs> Ended up getting six weeks for the tackle, uh, and and yeah. So because of that tackle, Adam Ritson went for a routine CAT scan. They discovered a cyst on his brain, which was potentially fatal. So basically, it all went downhill from there. Ritson had to have surgery to remove the cyst. Then he had to be operated again after 
he got an infection, got meningitis. And at that point, it wasn't realized how bad it was. So in the press, it was talked about as a season-ending injury. You know, one story saying, Ritson is expected to be fully recovered in three months and should be cleared to play football again next season. But as it turns out, he was in intensive care for over two months. And it became apparent as the weeks went on that this was a fight to save his life and, and football was the last thing to be worrying about. Tragic. And so it became career-ending because of that life-saving surgery. So it required the insertion of a shunt, which is a drainage tube, to reduce fluid on the, the brain. And the insertion of that shunt made it too dangerous for him to ever play again because he could no longer absorb hits to the head. So at age 20, Ritson was retired from football. And the saddest thing about it was he hadn't been told that his career was over at that point. Oh, my God. So he was in hospital recovering. All of the rugby league world knew that his career was over and they hadn't even broken it to him yet. And this led to a game-wide outpouring crossing the battle lines as you'd expect you had john lang coming out and saying adam is such a likable charming young guy who had the potential to play for australia but i just want to see him get well now shane richardson saying there's life after football for adam although he played for Parramatta this season we still regard adam as a cronulla kid if there's anything cronulla can do we'll do it it's very sad for the game and the support he received from ken arthurson is particularly resonant not only because of Adam Ritson's importance to the ARL fight, but for the fact that Arthurson too suffered a career-ending injury at a very young age. Yeah, I'm just so upset for Adam. I know what it's like to have a career cut short, and it took me 10 years to get over what happened to me. I have to thank um, Big Artie for debuting him at 16 to, to getting that. Yeah. At least he had some career yeah. and got the money out of it. And, and Arthur Beetson actually came out, uh, and he was clearly really shaken by it and upset by it. And that led to some probably regrettable remarks that he made. So he came out and said, losing a bloke as talented and as young as Adam is, is a tragedy. There's no other way to describe it. A lot of headshots on him went unchecked early in his career, and that simply wasn't good enough. Had the ARL taken more action earlier, Ritson would have been a lot better off. I'm dirty about what has happened. He's a terrific kid whose career I followed very closely. Adam Ritson had it all in front of him. He had incredible skills. He had it all. I think the media would have been better off ignoring the middle part of that statement and just focusing on... So is he insinuating that the headshots caused the cyst? Yeah, basically, that's what he was insinuating. Which medical school did he go to? Yeah. <laughs> and so that led to eventual medical confirmation that the cyst was pre-existing and it had nothing to do with his football career. Yeah, very regrettable comments. Yeah, uh, and a very sad situation, so... So you're right, he was lucky he was blooded as early as he was. And you talk about being in the right place at the right time. Like that cyst is discovered a year, two years earlier yeah. and he's left with absolutely nothing. Mm. As it is, because of people like his manager looking after him, he had Paul Dunn as his accountant, who's his accountant to this day and has always done the right thing by him. So he managed to put some money aside and... It wasn't the issue for him that it would have been. Obviously, you know, very sad to lose his football career. Got to say, uh, we, we're always trashing managers on here because they're easy targets, but it's a good story that he had a good guy on his side. Mm. As I said, it seems like every decade or so you, you get st a story about Adam Ritz and, and what he's up to. There was a Rebecca Wilson column in 2003 where she, she mentioned that he was looking for a job if anyone has any work, you know, send us an email. He was doing casual bar work for a while. 
eventually got a job as a, a bookies bagman at the races, which he thought was like living his dream. He, you know, loved the races anyway and got to do it for a living. <laughs> um, as of February 2019, he's still doing that. That's great. Uh, and and has epilepsy as a result of everything he went through, but hasn't had a fit for over two years. And from everything he said in that article, it, it seems life is pretty good for Adam Ritson, a lot better than it, it might have been without the support by from people like Steve Gillis. That's fantastic. Silver lining, though. He probably avoided CTE. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that is the end of this chapter. Uh, a lot of stuff packed into that, and there'll be a lot more fallout from that first week of April coming up over the next few chapters. So we'll finish with uh, our book plug, and it could only be one in this episode, and that's Matthew Ridge, Take No Prisoners. <laughs> uh, I really love to see more players go sans Ghostwriter for their autobiographies. And just say what's on their mind. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really good for that. I, I had to just focus on the Super League parts, but I look forward to a time in my life where I can actually do non-Super League reading, and I'll, I'll be heading straight back to <laughs> Matthew Ridge's book for that. Uh, just one note, this is the last show you'll hear before the Tom Brock lecture on the 24th of September. So please uh, go to tombrock.com.au, register. For, it's a free event, Peter Shem RSL, 6 for 6.30. We'll be there uh, and it's it's going to be a great night. It always is. Some, some great rugby league thinkers there and ourselves. So <laughs> we'd love to see you all there. Uh, as a result of Tom Brock commitments, we won't have a show for you next week. Uh, so I, I will also be needing that time to get the research up to speed. So you won't hear from us next week. So if you want to hear us talking Super League, coming to the Peter Shamara cell is the only way to do it. So <laughs> hope to see you there. And just to finish, I want to say, please keep your emails coming. I have to admit that I'm falling behind with the correspondence, but that is only because the quality of the emails we're getting demands a commensurate response. I, I get this beautiful, like really insightful email and as as much as i love it i'm like oh no this is great i'm really going to have to think about what to say to this one so please keep those thoughts coming it's a shame we didn't get these before the uh series yeah because yeah. they're really really good <laughs> uh luckily i've got a, a lot of material for future episodes from these emails so love any insights you may have please keep them in uh, and thank you so much for listening and we will speak to you soon take care deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 